Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Choosing wisely, we've probably all heard about some of the recommendations about not using too many antibiotics, but the statistics behind what makes the most sense in medicine have found a whole bunch of tests and treatments that doctors recommend routinely that might not make so much sense in the long run. Here to explain more about that is Dr. Mark Baker in the studio. We'll be discussing several different changes to what we often do. And you're, as always, welcome to join us. You can at 941-3689 or toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. But first in medical news, we have Dr. Rod Shaw on the line, a cardiologist in Pennsylvania. He's developed a unique way to expand healthcare delivery and just finished a pilot program to see how remote appointments can help to bring the doctor to you in the future. It's kind of like a 21st century house call. Dr. Shaw, welcome to The Body Show. Well, thank you very much, Kathleen. Now, tell us a little bit what is entailed in this process of having, I guess we could call it, remote doctor appointments. Well, what we have developed is actually remote doctor visit or doctor and patient actually uh, are, are seeing each other and doctor is able to conduct a complete medical examination, not just the video conference, but actually examine the patient, able to make the diagnosis of the condition, able to prescribe electronically with a complete uh, electronic medical record system and through that system, we also have a patient portal whereby patient can log in and actually access their important, meaningful information, uh, and they can actually have that available 24 by 7 and can share with their doctor or with other caregivers. They can also keep updating their own personal health record going on our site, and that is available free of charge to them. So now it sounds like some of what you're describing we've had access to. You know, people can have electronic medical records. They can have access to them. Doctors can do video conferencing. But there's something very unique about what you described. And you described that they can do a complete examination. And that is probably that technology shift that that sounds like something we haven't had access to before. Can you walk me through what this would be like? Is there a device involved? Does the person on the receiving end have to have this device? And, you know, as a cardiologist, often listening to the heart can tell you so much about how somebody's heart is doing and what their cardiac health is like. Could you even do that through this device? Yes. Let me elaborate on that. So, what we have created is a online system which includes video conferencing, which is HIPAA-compliant, encrypted, not just the free FaceTime or uh, Skype. It is similar, but it's different in a sense. It's secure, and it is HIPAA-compliant. It's encrypted. And HIPAA, Along for some this, folks, just to review HIPAA, is the Healthcare uh, Information and Portability Act, which really tries to keep things confidential. You wouldn't want someone hacking in and seeing your video conference. So, so it's compliant with the security features. That's what you mean, right? Yes. Thank you. Okay. Uh, and, and then at the patient site, 
wherever the patient is, we integrated the devices which normally doctor would use to conduct medical examination, for example, electronic stethoscope. So when patient puts the stethoscope on their chest, at the same time, in a real time, doctor at the other end, while seeing patient through video conference, is able to examine and listen to the heart sounds, lung sounds, vascular sounds, and, and can make diagnosis more accurately. We also have integrated other commonly used diagnostic devices, that is blood pressure, measuring the oxygen or pulse ox, measuring um, uh, uh, like temperature or something. Sure. I mean, putting okay. the video lamp, otoscope. We can even put in the ophthalmoscope. We have built in electrocardiogram. So as it is done, doctor is able to see it online at the other end. So really speaking, all the usual devices we use during normal medical examination, the all devices are built in and integrated so that doctor is able to conduct real-time examination as if you are in person. Only thing doctor is not able to do is touch the patient because you are remote online. Now, you've piloted this on the mainland and actually seen patients in this context. Tell us a little bit about how it went. Yes, it, that's very interesting. I was fortunate to be to connect with uh, Walmart uh, headquarters, and uh, they leased me a, a space in two Walmart stores, both in Pennsylvania, Philadelphia area, where we opened a clinic whereby it is completely a telemedicine clinic, no doctor or nurse practitioner, just a medical assistant at the site who actually receives the patient, put in the uh, medical uh, the demographics, and take the patient to the exam room where there's a big screen, and doctor comes online, and all the devices are there, so actually doctor uh, takes the history, asks the patient, do the examination, and then able to make the diagnosis, discuss with patient, and, and prescribe the treatment. Uh, so this complete process, done all online, was open in two areas, two Walmart stores in the Shamani Mall and Willow Grove in Philadelphia area. We conducted and we saw more than 1,000 patients over the last two years. The, the space was leased and I have completed that project. These are patients walking into the uh, clinic uh, and, and, and uh, we did a real field use of our system, validated it. It was made, confirmed the accuracy, ease of use. And by the way, Patients were so happy we conducted the survey, almost 99% loved the way the convenience they had, loved the way they were able to interact with the doctor, and they were happy with the technology use. Nobody ever walked out saying, well, there is no doctor in person. We don't want to use this system. And particularly the young people, they just had wow because they are tech, uh, technically more savvy. So it was a very, very positive experience uh, and, and completely validated our system for uh, use in real life. Now, I'm curious, you know, we often think about how constraining the healthcare system is 
right now. I mean, you have to call to get an appointment. Then you have to take time out of your day to go to the appointment. Even something simple like where do you park your car? And then going to see the doctor and taking a prescription, going to a pharmacy, getting it filled. There's a lot of different steps that have to take place. And yet it seems like this has kind of streamlined all of these steps and made it a lot easier for people to be seen when they want to be seen. Where do you see something like this going in the future? I mean, you set up two sites at particular places and people could walk in. Ever think about how this might work if the devices were available in someone's home? I mean, oh. I, I don't know if it would be cost prohibitive, but where do you see this system going in the near future and maybe in the far out future? Oh, absolutely. Let me tell you the one of the biggest a bear, a biggest difficulty in healthcare arena is access to healthcare. When I say access, patients' ability to get to the doctor, whether it is because of the distance or because of the ability to get there physically or somebody else has to take them or the cost of getting to the doctor. So also, access becomes a barrier. Okay. Right, access. And sometimes access is limited by uh, distance or weather barrier. I mean, look at the um, Midwest and other, other, other states where doctors may be 30, 40 miles away from their home, and then the difficulty of getting there, well, this absolutely eliminates all the barriers. Second thing, we showed that the, by providing this medical visit online, we actually reduced the cost. We were able to provide a regular doctor visit at almost half the cost of uh, regular visit in person, as well as if you go to the emergency room, my God, your minimum charge is $500 plus. We were able to give this in $59. So we reduce the cost, we improve the access, we eliminate the barriers, and particularly patients who are disabled at home with some stroke or other illnesses, we can actually take this system that we have built is really so easy and portable the devices can be put in a small um, purse and with a laptop and a internet connectivity at patient site. It can be patient, doctor can be brought online to see the patient and examine the patient and provide the care. So it really opens a very, very wide area of application of the system. And to that extent, I want to kind of uh, tell you where we have gone in last year, taking it to different places, for example. What, when we say clinic setup, it could be at any place. It could be at a workplace. It could be in school. It could be in a mall, or it could be in a retail store or pharmacy. The, there, there is a, simply a computer with a screen and devices connected to Internet. So That's it could the only be... thing needed. And then... We can take the same thing in a bag and go to patient home. Home health care people can take it. Now, there's interim health care in Bucks County is using this system. They take it to patient home, and particularly some patients, as I said, one who are paraplegic and uh, wheelchair-bound, this is tremendous uh, service to them. They don't have to be taken by special transportation or ambulance to get to doctor's office or hospital. Well, and I think the important point you mentioned is that it can be in one set location like you described, or it can be portable enough that you bring it 
to the person. And it seems to me like, boy, particularly in areas where they're underserved as far as having specialists or even having primary care doctors available, this is one way to sort of breach that gap. And then, of course, my other thought goes, boy, in developing countries, you could really wind up seeing a lot of folks and doing a lot of cardiac screening or finding out who has things that require referral to a central area. I mean, even in the U.S. you could do that, but I just... I see a lot of different applications. And then, boy, on the selfish side, I think, boy, what if I could go to work in my pajamas? I mean, wouldn't that be, uh, wouldn't that be ideal? And, and Absolutely. Yes, you can. <laughs> well, not just yet. I think if I showed up to work in PJs, I might get myself in a little bit of trouble. <laughs> That's true. And, um, and, and, Kathleen, also this takes further down to uh, even for the physician where you have multiple doctor's offices, but only a uh, few doctors are going from point place one place to another. Now, they don't have to go there. They could be in one place, even in their office or in their home, and if patients are coming to the clinic, the doctor can connect and see them. And so, and, and, and so far as the cost of the system is concerned, let me just give you a perspective. In 2001, when it was first came in and was used by VA system, it cost $150,000. Today, I'm able to give this system, complete system, for $7,500. And so far as the uh, devices are concerned, if patient wants to keep it at home, it is less than $1,000. And let me also um, uh, tell you that I'm working with another uh, company we are developing so that all the important devices, including on a tablet, with the devices, uh, uh, blood pressure, pulse ox, uh, uh, EKG, video lamp, uh, a stethoscope, on a small, small size, four inch by eight inch little uh, tablet, which you can carry anywhere you want, and you can connect with the doctor at the cost of less than five hundred dollars. So, really speaking, each household can um, uh, afford that, and they can actually connect with their doctor. Because for the doctor, there is no cost. The doctor simply download the application, and they can see the patient, and in between, they can decide whatever their charges are covered by insurance. And I must tell you, state of Hawaii is really at the forefront. It was one of the first states um, uh, in the union to recognize and pay for telemedicine. In 21 states, they pay for telemedicine at par with in-person office, other um, uh, Thirty-plus uh, 30 states, they don't. Unfortunately, Pennsylvania is not uh, uh, paying for telemedicine, so we had to be charging uh, cash $59 for each visit. Well, it sounds like that just means you have to come to Hawaii. Because I would love to. There like you go. It. Or maybe you can just telemedicine Hawaii. I don't know. But uh, it sounds exciting, and boy, maybe soon I'll be heading into some folks' homes electronically to take care of them. It certainly sounds like it's on the cutting edge and we will definitely keep in touch and hopefully hear some more about the progress of this program that you're doing and see if it is something that we can take a look at here locally. Absolutely. I'm, I'm going into home health care. My system is going to be utilized in Belfast, Northern Ireland and Europe, Middle East and Northern Africa. We are going into Living Heart Foundation and National Football uh, League Players Association to them in various communities to do screening work using telemedicine, uh, bringing doctor 
when needed and, and getting that information. We are going into private clinics. We are going into universities, uh, uh, faculty buildings, dorms, uh, faculty uh, clinics, whereby they don't, for their regular care, they don't have to leave their workplaces and lose the productivity and still get the care a uh, lot more easy. All right. It's certainly a model that we want to go ahead and take a look at. So I want to thank you for sharing your expertise with us today and telling us a little bit about the cutting edge on medical technology for doctor visits. Thanks a lot, Dr. Shaw. Well, thank you very much, and thank you for giving me this opportunity to share this exciting development. Well, and keep us in the loop so that when this becomes something that might even come to our shores, we know about it and can, uh, can start taking a look at it. Oh, All I would right. love to come, come and, 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 and help you set up the uh, system so we can go, reach to all the islands and uh, provide the care. Sounds good. Going to work in pajamas. It's my plan. All right. Speaking of inventions, there's a lot we can do in medicine, as we just heard from Dr. Shaw about some of the different ways we can use technology to help us. But then again, should we? You know, sometimes with all the technology available – it doesn't necessarily make us healthier. In fact, worldwide, despite spending some of the most dollars on health care, we still don't have the statistics to show that it's keeping any, any one of us any better than folks in countries that don't have the same expenditures. So, you know, if it comes down to doing the right test on the right person at the right time, giving them the medicine they need, nothing more, nothing less, and doing so in a cost-effective fashion, We've still got a ways to go. Certainly, it would be great to go ahead and go to work from home, but that's not yet the reality. When we come back, we're going to be talking with Dr. Mark Baker. He's in the studio here to share his expertise on how to know if you're doing too much or maybe too little when it comes to your health care. So when we come right back, we're going to talk some more. And if you have a, a question or a concern or want to be part of this discussion, we're here, 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877 877- Nine four one three six eight nine. We will be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. With Black Friday almost upon us, retailers are leaving no demographic unturned. What they've done really cleverly is they have targeted the millennials. I'm Kai Rizdal. Macy's adjusts its sights next time on Marketplace. We'll have the rest of the day's business news as well and the numbers from Wall Street. It's all from APM. This evening at 6, following The Body Show. You might remember a few months ago we had a conversation with a woman who was helping other people go through the immigration process she'd already been through. We'll talk to her about her assessment of the president's plan, and we'll pick up the conversation of a woman who was looking for her homeless father. What happened? We'll find out tomorrow morning at 8 on The Conversation. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Whole Foods Market Hawaii, Ferraro Choi, and Ulupono Initiative. Aloha. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Mark Baker. We're going to be talking about things that we need to take a look at so that we can choose more wisely as consumers of health care. Just a few moments earlier, we heard from a Dr. Shaw from Pennsylvania piloting a very unique system 
where you could actually have a doctor visit in the privacy of your own home or doctors could do their job from their own home. Sounds exciting. There's a lot of technology and advances that are out there, and yet we really have to take a look and get back to the basics with certain things with healthcare. And Dr. Baker's here to help us understand what that means. Dr. Baker, welcome to The Body Show. Thank you, Kathy. Now, tell me a little bit about this this whole initiative, Choosing Wisely. There's a reason why it started to come about. What have we been doing, and and how did this whole process get started? You know, I, I really think the reason that it uh, was kind of conceived and thought of and created is related to the increasing cost of medicine, and in the United States in particular, how we're spending more and more and devoting more of our uh, a GDP towards the uh, uh, health care and providing health care, and we're not really seeing results from it. We're not getting the same impact that uh, other countries are getting that are spending less. Um, so there's a, a number of people that kind of came up with the thought, well, let's look at the things that each uh, specialty, each medical specialty is doing and whether or not those things are really providing benefit. And then maybe we could create a list that would help uh, direct the providers like the docs in each of those specialties towards whether or not they should be really doing that particular uh, thing, providing that uh, particular medicine or ordering that uh, specific test. So like as, a, as what might see, seem to be a, a simple example, antibiotics, that's something I deal with every day. People come in, they're sick, they've just gotten sick, they want antibiotics because they think it'll help them and they don't have time to be sick, and I totally sympathize. But, you know, if we overuse antibiotics, we've heard a lot in the media about resistance of different bacteria to antibiotics, certain conditions that will get better on their own. So that's sort of an example that a lot of people might have heard about, that, you know, you don't have to rush to your doctor every time you get the sniffles. There are certain things that you may want to treat with strong medicine like antibiotics and other things you don't have to. So that's kind of an example that a lot of people can understand. Um, now, you work in an emergency room capacity, so what are some of the simple things that occur in your area that people may think they need, and yet maybe statistics would say otherwise? Oh, you know, the antibiotics are a, a great example related to common viral infections, and one of the things I always try to do is make a point of explaining to the patient that viruses are not killed by antibiotics for for the most part that's true there's you know the flu virus we do have a few medicines that will kill viruses but the viruses that we get that are causing uh, cough cold sore throat runny nose and then the vomiting and diarrhea things those aren't uh, treated with antibiotics the then I uh, hear all the time well, you know when I get this um, I take antibiotics and I get better. And I kind of think to myself, well, uh, what we need to do is also see if you got to get better without taking those medicines. And that's, that's really what uh, uh, the Choosing Wisely initiative is kind of about, is applying what we call evidence-based medicine. Uh, evidence-based medicine would be the practice of uh, medicine based on good scientific evidence. And, and not quite so much just doing things because we kind of want to do them or we're, uh, you know, we're maybe afraid not to do them. Well, and I think in some cases we're just trained that's the way it is. 
you know, I remember going to school and it's like, why do we do certain things? Because that's what Dr. So-and-so says to do. So you do it that way. And we're often taught in school to question that and say, well, how come? What is the reason behind doing, you know, X, Y, or Z test? And and what are we going to learn from that test? And yet sometimes as we start in practice, you know, we stop asking those questions. Why am I doing this x-ray or why am I doing this brain scan. And and in some cases, although I don't think this occurs, at least not to me or a lot of my colleagues, as much as I think people might think is, oh, no, I better do it or they'll sue me. You know, that actually probably doesn't play as big of a role in in my daily life as as I read in the papers. And I'm like, wow, I should be really scared of that. But but I just do certain things because I think maybe there's some piece of information I need from that test. And yet, as time goes on, we find a lot more in medicine that has been refined. You know, a few years ago, we heard about, for example, prostate screening in men. And, you know, one group said, don't even test for it. Another group said, test all the time. And when the actual recommendations came out, they made a lot of sense. You know, if you're 90, don't go looking for trouble that we're not going to be able or want to treat because it might cause more harm, pain, discomfort, et cetera, in treating it. But if you're if you're 50, that's a different situation. So it kind of made sense what came out of that, and it was really based on some of the evidence. Agreed. That's uh, a really good. I like the prostate example because it kind of brings up the concept of uh, overdiagnosing things. And also, to me, what we need to keep in mind is that uh, we have to look at the impact of what we're doing to the entire population and not just single people. So if we have a screening test that, um, and and there are several examples of this, but if you just think of, okay, we're going to check and see if, if somebody's got uh, disease X, and then if we find that disease X, we're going to cure it because we're going to cut it out. But if in the process of looking for disease X, we have to um, cause a whole bunch of harm to a whole bunch of people who really kind of had disease X that was never going to turn into death, it was never going to progress, then we really haven't done the community any good. Now we've um, caused a whole lot of both unnecessary surgery and, and maybe complications of those surgeries and, um, and really haven't done any, any good. And the hard part is when you think of yourself on an individual basis or my own individual medical problems, it's like, uh, I don't want to have disease X. I don't want to have anything. So please go ahead and, and take care of that. But if you look at the whole population that's receiving treatment for something, it could, like the prostate uh, cancer, it could be that the treatment is more invasive and potentially more harmful than the disease itself, especially in the uh, more advanced years when the incidence of prostate cancer gets up above like 80%. Well, and I think it's also this this discussion between an individual and their doctor about what's most appropriate for them. I mean, you know, some people unfortunately have kidney failure. So if they have a serious kidney failure problem, then doing a test for some other thing that they may never get but not treating their kidney failure doesn't make sense. If they have heart failure and their heart's not going to be strong enough for them to live another five years, testing them for something that doesn't have any issues until you've had it for 20 years doesn't make sense. So 
you know, part of what I think is difficult is it's not restricting the right tests for the right people. It's finding out who in that population is really going to benefit. And then let's make sure we treat them as best as possible. But let's not overtreat those who don't need it or undertreat, you know, because mm-hmm. that's the other question is, should you just never do anything? And I think the pendulum kind of has to find a nice place right in the middle. We've got a caller on the line. We've got Mike calling in from Kaneohe. Mike, welcome to The Body Show. Aloha. Aloha. What can we do for you on this Monday? Well, I just have a cautionary tale of my own about um, about medical testing and over-testing. I uh, once had a lot of extra money in my flexible spending account at the end of the year, so I thought, well, I can use this for, oh, I will get a baseline spiral CT scan from one of these commercial outfits. And uh, that well know I have some, some baseline for the future about what, might, what they could compare to. And... Um, turns out that the CT scan found a spot on my lung, supposedly, but I couldn't tell what it was. And I've never been a smoker. Um, had been exposed to a little secondhand smoke as a kid, but never been a smoker. Didn't have a TB. You know, didn't have any other indications. But because of the spot, the doctor I went to later on, I went to my physician, oh, let's do a uh, needle biopsy. And they did a needle biopsy, and of course, the biopsy came back with nothing, but I got a pneumothorax. And that's when the lung collapses. Okay, yeah. Right. So it's about six hours more in the hospital than I had originally planned to, and it could have been. It it ended up resolving itself while I was there, so it didn't have to be overnight. But I was like extra six hours waiting for the pneumothorax to go away. So um, it could have been much more serious. But after that, I kind of started being very, very cautious about what kinds of elective tests I undertake because in this case the uh, uh, the negative uh, over treatment that the test led to was uh, not worth in my opinion the price because you know my lungs are going to change over time anyway and they, they found nothing and there was no reason that besides the CT scan to even have done any so I'm curious Mike if you could if you could turn back time would you have done the scan with your flex spending money I probably would have tried to find some other use for the flex spending money. Um, I'm curious. Yeah, go ahead. I'm I, curious. I, I had a, yeah. What if you had done the scan and you knew that there was a spot on your lung? Could you have lived with the spot on your lung and not worried about it, not knowing what it was? Yeah, I think I could have. Um, I... I sense that I didn't have any other risk factors. Um, I had a lot of pneumonia when I was a kid, so there was a lot of reasons to have scars on my lungs. Anyway. It's a really good point, uh, though, and I appreciate you calling in, Mike, because, you know, first you did this test without any symptoms, and there are tests out there that some people will do without any symptoms or even with symptoms, and they find something. And then the curious part about it becomes, is that something that's a risk for you? And if so, do further testing, do your biopsy, et cetera. If it's a low risk for you, I think the big question that comes up is, could you just live with it? And if you could psychologically live with it, not alone medically, but could you just live with it? If you could psychologically live with it, knowing that you're at low risk for having a problem, that kind of puts you in a different category. Because I think a lot of people would say, that would drive me crazy. I know there's something there. And and, you know, it would just be on their mind all the time. So I give you credit for, you know, honestly looking at it saying, hey, maybe 
maybe I wouldn't do something about it. Dr. Baker, I'm sure this is a story that you've heard before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What if so? So here's Mike. You know, he's doing this scan. He's trying to stay healthy, and somebody says, "Okay, we'll do the scan. We'll use your flex." spending money and and he thinks it's a worthwhile thing to do and yet you know he's talking exactly about some of the sequelae of an unnecessary procedure that pneumothorax or lung collapse which uh good for you mike it actually got better on its own sometimes that leads to a chest tube and for anybody who's ever had one yeah that's a very painful not so fun thing mm-hmm. um, i uh, ended up firing a doctor that i talked it over with later on because it turns out he was uh, every time i went to him it seemed like i was getting an x-ray or something and under his desk, he had a whole pile of x-rays. Well, I think that gets back, sure, to the partnership issue, which is, you know, finding somebody you feel comfortable with who's doing yeah. the right test for you and, and feeling as though you, you understand the reason why and you're part of that decision. Right. And and I think this is a great example of how we can consider screening tests and we kind of think that the screening test is a good idea but then if you look in more detail at a population, you might find that that screening test really isn't helpful. And, and for you, I'm sorry you had that uh, pneumothorax related to uh, a screening test that uh, probably some doctors would think you really didn't need because you didn't have those risk factors, uh, being a non-smoker. It's kind of interesting because a few years back they did the PLCO trial here, the prostate, lung, and ovarian cancer trial. And what they were looking at is they were looking to see if the the type of testing you would do for – actually, it was the National Lung Cancer Screening Trial. I'm sorry. I think it was the the National Lung Cancer Screening Trial. It was – it was a group of folks that were looking at this and saying, hey, are x-rays a good way to detect lung cancer and or CT scans? And so they got a group of people and they said, let's scan everybody and do x-rays on everybody. And then let's go ahead and take a look years down the line and see what happens. And they were able to define a certain population who might benefit from a scan. It depends. Every year we don't know yet. But that population are the heavy smokers. They called it 30-pack years, either two packs a day for 15 years, one pack a day for 30 years, something that adds to 30. And that particular population may have received a benefit from doing the scanning because, and not the x-ray because they might have found a cancer earlier. But anybody who smoked less than that was subject to having biopsies done for things that statistically weren't going to be cancer. So they actually did part of that trial right here in the islands mm-hmm. and came up with some information that was very helpful. Um, and so it gets back to the question, you know, here's Mike saying, I'm going to do this spiral CT. Should he have ever done the test? And I guess that gets back to looking at some of this Choosing Wisely program, which basically tries to help patients and doctors come to a conclusion as to whether or not a test is necessary and both agree and feel comfortable with that decision. And I say that because I mean it. It's, you know, medicine is a democracy. It's not a dictatorship. And although 50 years ago it could be, you know, Dr. Baker, you tell me to do this and I always follow everything you say, now we kind of have to have that negotiation because I think it's an important part of being comfortable. Even Mike said, hey, I fired the doc who who gave me that advice because look at all the things that happened. So I'm curious, where do you see this evolving into? Not necessarily Mike's scenario, but in general, how do you see this program helping people? Well, you mentioned one thing that I I think it helps with a lot, and that is, and one of the it's one of their main intents is to promote conversation between the provider, the doc, and the patient, 
And by promoting conversations about whether or not you should have something, I think you increase the knowledge base of the patient, and then the doctor can find out more about kind of what the patient's interests are. Um, it could be there are some test or treatment that uh, somebody would just as soon not have even kind of like if you're going to screen me for a disease, the main reason to screen is because if you find it, yeah, I'm going to do something about it. But if I've already decided I'm not going to do anything about uh, a disease, if you find it, then there's really no reason to screen for it. And that conversation, I think, is, is an important one. Um, I would agree. I think, you know, I just saw somebody today, a wonderful woman. She's 95. Feels great, looks great, doing great, but she has aortic stenosis. That's a narrowing of one of the heart valves. That happens in her case because she's gotten older. She's she's ninety five, and you know she saw she saw somebody who suggested to her, "Hey, if you'd like to, you'd be a candidate to do this type of valve procedure. It's not invasive. They could go ahead and they could go in through a little catheter in the groin and." bring it up towards your heart, kind of like an angioplasty, but a little bit different. <clears throat> and and they could go ahead and they could actually open up this this narrowed valve. And you might feel great. And, and so she saw me after that and she said, but I feel great now. And so I don't want to go ahead and do this procedure. And I said, well, okay, you know, you're 95. What would you like to do? And she said, you know, at my age, I don't want to have a procedure. I've had family members who have unfortunately passed on in the midst of doing what was a very well-intended procedure, but had a complication. And she said, you know, I'm okay with not treating this because it's not bothering me. And when and if it does, I'm okay with that too. And that was a conversation that she had half an hour after one she had with, with somebody else who suggested, hey, you should do this procedure. And I thought, wow, at 95, at what point do you get to choose what you want to do or not? <laughs> I think by 95, mm -hmm. you're there. And so it was interesting, the dichotomy of these two opinions, and she was, she was felt much more comfortable knowing that we would respect her age as a factor in this and her quality of life. And, and it just, it, you know, even today, these things happen, even just earlier in my office. You know, so it really shows how we need to have more of these conversations. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Mark Baker. When we come back in just a minute, we're going to talk some more about how people can access this program and can they look up certain things and where can you get good medical information about different tests that could be done or maybe things that maybe you don't need to do. You'll be able to join us at 941-3689, toll free 877-941-3689. The right test at the right time for the right person. That's what we're talking about today. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. The Quartet Kaiholu, a blending of voices and instruments and new arrangements of Hawaiian classics and originals, performs Saturday, November the 29th at 7.30 in HBR's intimate Atherton Studio. Sit and let the sweet harmonies of Kaiholu wash the world away. Tickets for their November 29th concert at hbrtickets.org or by calling 955-8821 during business hours. So Dido pleads, and so her desolate sister takes him the tale of tears again and again, but no tears move Aeneas now. A tragic queen, this week on Selected Shorts, from PRI, Public Radio International. 
Tuesday at 5 p.m. following Travel with Rick Steves. Aloha. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Mark Baker. And today we are talking about choosing wisely, how to know what sort of tests that you need to do at what age, until what time, and what do we need to do about some of the results. You can join our conversation at 941-3689, toll free from our friends in the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Now, Dr. Baker, one of the things that I think people may not realize is that part of what we're describing is an initiative that is promoting these conversations, but people can check it out themselves, too. That's correct. Um, Choosing Wisely is uh, the organization. They have a website, choosingwisely.org, O-R-G. And on that website, you can find the same information that's available to the physicians. There are patient handouts. Um, uh, They list all of the different medical specialties that have endorsed Choosing Wisely and a little bit about their history. I guess an easy example would be if you're if you're kind of wondering, okay, what do you do about bronchitis? You can go to the website and do a search for the word bronchitis and find out what the different medical specialties suggest uh, for treatment for bronchitis. Well, and that's really important because a lot of times people look something up online and they come up with all these different things that they might access on the web and not all of it's good medical information. And some sources are really good, but some of them maybe not so much. And it's really hard to know where to get good quality information. And so I have to say I was navigating through the website earlier today, and it does provide easy ways for people to understand the rationale behind some of the choices that they and their doctor might make. But also it helps the doctors to say, hey, you know what, this is who backs up what I'm saying. Because, again, I think bronchitis is one of those situations where antibiotics come into play. Should you take them? Should you not? Um, Is this something that would be good for you or maybe harmful later? And so it's one of those things where it's nice as a physician to say to somebody, okay, you know what, you're probably going to get better. I had this. I got better. You don't need a whole lot of antibiotics, but this is what you do need. And here's some information about why. Really give them that educational tool. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, what other sorts of things do you see very commonly or or what other areas is this particular system designed to be really helpful with? Well, it it lists a number of examples. I guess another easy example for me is something that I would see frequently in the emergency department, and that would be a minor head injury. And... um, I, I, I scan hit, me, doctor. I yeah. hit my head. I'm fine. I'm alert. I can talk. I can speak. I'm doing good. Mm-hmm. But I, I think you should scan me because it hurts a little bit. Mm-hmm. Do you see that often? That's I do. So we see I hit myself in the head, and I think I might need a CAT scan. And so, and my practice for years has been to talk to the patient about that. Part of my emergency medicine training was to do a month of neurosurgery. So that's the the brain surgeons. And uh, that's not like a required thing. It's probably not a typical rotation for an ER physician. But the neurosurgeons taught me that you don't really need to do a head CT unless you think you might need to do brain surgery. So they were always complaining to me like, why are they doing CAT scans on these people who there's no way I would ever take them to the OR? So for years, I've always had my own communication uh, conversation with the patient saying, okay, you hit your head and then you've got a headache, but it's getting better. There's no vomiting. I don't see any sign of anything serious. 
these are the things that you would watch for. And if, if you were to get those, you would need to come back. And the reason to do a CAT scan is to see if you might need brain surgery. Usually about when I get to the brain surgery uh, part of the conversation, the answer is, I don't need brain surgery. I don't want a CAT scan. So when you explain the real rationale for the test, I think it really helps with the the patient and the doc uh, making a decision related to whether they want the test. Well, and I like the fact that you also suggested, you know, we talk about the signs or symptoms and if something changes, what we would want to do, which means that any decision doesn't have to be a static decision at one point in time and nothing will change that. Hey, you know what? That decision could be revised should the symptoms change in the future. Definitely. So this is, again, a conversation based on what your status is right now and what makes sense. And then what, if it changes, what to watch out for. Okay. Mm -hmm. We've got a caller on the line. We have Lori from Kahala. Lori, welcome to The Body Show. Thank you. What can we do for you? Um, This is a very relevant topic to me today because I just spoke with my brother who's um, 54. And I found out today that he'd changed his health insurance um, for a variety of reasons, but primarily to save money. And I also learned that he has never had a colonoscopy and that he's had three doctors at Kaiser uh, recommend to him that he does not need one, that the risks of a colonoscopy um, outweigh the benefits to him. And I immediately, well, I, I disagreed with him because I'm am very big on preventative medicine, and his comment was, well, I will go to the doctor, but, I'll, you know, I go to the doctor when I'm sick, and I go once a year for a checkup. And my thought was, why are you going to the doctor when you're sick? Why aren't you going for screenings and preventative medicine? Um, so I looked up risk factors and found that he, in fact, has lifestyle risk factors that are listed. He has every one of them. You know, obesity. He's loving you right now. I hope he's no listening. No exercise. Okay. You know, et cetera, et cetera. And um, so far, he's only been offered, you know, a stool sample as a way of screening for colon cancer. And my thought was, is this really the discussion? Is this really around what is best, or is this anything to do with money? Well, it's an interesting. It's an interesting thought, Laurie, because you know, and and just just to blow your mind just a little bit. Because cause I love reading about new stuff in science. And maybe about a week or two ago, uh, the Mayo Clinic, in addition to one of their gastroenterologists, has determined that there may be a, a genetic test that you can do, like a fecal DNA test oh. that you can do that that may actually be taking over some of these other stool sample kind of things that we're doing. And unfortunately, they know that they can do it. We just don't know how often, and it's still somewhat cost prohibitive to do even just this this special test. But wow. anyway, so, you know, that's just to throw it out there. Hey, our colon screening is going to get better soon. Let's and hope. yeah, exactly. Well, because, I mean, the colonoscopy itself isn't so bad, but I haven't heard anybody tell me, boy, doc, I love that prep. Love the prep. <laughs> I love that prep. I've never heard that phrase. No. And so, you know, you bring up an interesting point, which is, you know, my brother's over 50. He has risk factors. What does science say about colon cancer screening? And so, 
it's an interesting uh, an interesting thing you bring up. In addition to a 54-year-old with lifestyle factors, what is the most common cause of problems for him? And that's probably going to be cholesterol, blood pressure, sugar. It's going to be the trio of, you know, heart problems and, and blood pressure and diabetes. So, boy, I mean, granted, he's 54. He should check in the colon screening. But people are 10 times more likely to die of heart attacks and strokes than any type of cancer. Mm-hmm. And so, boy, that's the basics. Get that done. Right. You know, because if he's hypertensive, diabetic, and has high cholesterol, he really needs to treat those even before he does screening of anything. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's an interesting thing that you bring up about the uh, about the the stool testing for blood. And I, I have some thoughts on that, Dr. Baker. Do you? Yeah, I do. Um, kind of interesting related, going back to the population data, and this would be part of the conversation that I think uh, the physician should have with the uh, patient, and that would be if you take 1,000 patients who get a colonoscopy, and this isn't really looking at the risk factors and all that, but if you uh, do 1,000 colonoscopies, uh, you have the potential to save one life, which seems pretty good except that in doing those 1,000 colonoscopies, there are generally about three um, kind of bad outcomes related to a complication from doing the colonoscopy. Mm -hmm. So then to me, I say to myself, okay, so let's get the patient involved in the decision. And, and, you know, do you want to risk a very low chance of a complication uh, compared to a very low chance of saving your life because you've got colon cancer? Right. And and there and then and then I think the risk factors are really important. And since I'm an ER doc, this isn't my specialty, but uh, but it's a really important conversation. Well, and I'll tell you, Laura, the other thing just to keep in mind is that um, you know, and I've looked at some of this data because we do kind of a similar stool test through my office. Right. And the interesting thing about the data, which I had to double check because when I first heard it, I'm like, no way, but it is kind of true is that if you do yearly stool testing for blood mm-hmm. for 10 years and you do it consistently, you have the same screening rate as if you did one colonoscopy every 10 years. Oh, that is interesting. Isn't it? And I thought it was totally baloney. And yeah. the doctor who came on and told me, I'm like, I'm going to look this up because I don't know what he just said. And then during the break I did, and it was actually true. So, you know, so it kind of gets back to the idea of, is your brother's yearly stool test adequate? Well, Mm -hmm. it Mm -hmm. probably is. Now, could he still develop a problem? Sure he could. Likelihood, it's going to be one of those other issues, those blood pressure, cholesterol, diabetes issues. Right. Um, Could he still also... Diabetes now. Of course, the other thing I think of is the fact that when you do have a colonoscopy and a polyp is found, for instance, that um, then it is removed and biopsied and you're actually treating at the same time. It just sort of struck me that maybe one colonoscopy to see if you had polyps. Absolutely. Like, you know, I've had- and, and see, at 54, that becomes the issue. So, you right. know, we do know that if you do a colon, and actually another inst- interesting statistic they've taken a look at is if you do a colonoscopy at the age of 65. Okay. And it's normal. Mm-hmm. And you never have any problems. There's a group looking at whether or not you should have to do another one. Mm-hmm. Whether that should be your last one. Exactly. So now 65. I thought it was 70. Well, no, no. Six, they're, they're looking at, okay, so if you were 65 and you had a colonoscopy and it was clear. Right. Should you do another one at 75? Well, now we're putting some age, re, I don't want to say restrictions, but sort of age guidelines for doing colon screening. Because, you, you know, that. let's face it, if you're 90, I'm so excited that you're 90. I'm not going to put you through the colon prep because, 
boy, the colon prep alone could cause you to have a serious problem, let alone the colonoscopy. So who should we focus our efforts on? We should focus the efforts on statistically who's going to get colon cancer and who can we actively treat and prevent this disease. And so they look and said, all right, well, we really should focus our colon screening between the ages of 50 and 75. So if you do your colonoscopy and you're clear at 65, should you do one at 75? Well, then that gets to that conversation again, which is how healthy are you? Mm-hmm. You know, if you're super healthy and you're doing great and your long your longevity, or your projected lifetime is another 20 years, maybe you should. If you've got really bad high blood pressure, if you've got heart disease, if you've got kidney problems at 75, should you go ahead and do a colonoscopy? Maybe well, you don't need to bother, really. And that's, that becomes that discussion, that personal discussion between someone and their doctor, which, again, I'm all on your side telling your brother to show up when he's not just sick. So I'm with you there. <laughs> right. But to have exactly. these discussions okay, with so a doctor. Okay, clear yeah. because he will want these facts. So if you have your blood... Well, let's go with number one. Ten the, years. You're right. Okay. Annual fecal test comes back clear. Ten years, it will be the same statistical outcome as it might be if you'd had a colonoscopy every 10 years. Did I get that? You got it right. So first thing, Laurie, start with, you're his sister, you're right. Okay. Then start with, okay, he does his stool testing. Exactly. So, you know, we'll just pretend you're 54 and a half because we don't want to say, you know, you're you're older. But you're older enough to say that. Then, yeah, his his yearly fecal occult is most likely going to be okay if he does it every year. And even if he has lifestyle risk factors, look for the obvious. Diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol. And again, if he has changes in his bowel habits or blood in his stool or has severe constipation, suddenly all of these things change a little bit because we go from screening to diagnosis. And so when we talk about screening testing, we're not necessarily talking diagnostic. I understand the difference. Good. I'm glad you do because, you know, screening means you're healthy. Check me out. Diagnostic means I have a symptom. Maybe I should check and look into it. Exactly. so right. you're right. Your brother should listen to you. Get a yearly exam to at least check cholesterol, blood sugar, cholesterol, I mean, sorry, and, and blood pressure. Make sure he doesn't have those risk factors and do his yearly stool testing. And that that's a good place to start. Great. Thank you. Great answers. You got it. All right, Laura, thanks for calling. And I hope he listens to you. <laughs> I never know. You never know. Okay. We've got Jeff on the line from Kaneohe. Jeff, welcome to The Body Show. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thanks for calling. What can we do for you today? Well, uh, my dad uh, called me up about three years ago, and he um, had got a test, and it, they went in and did uh, kind of a screening, and found that he had a bulge on the artery feeding that fed his kidney. And he's 70, he was 71 at the time, and he called me up asking whether he thought I should get, get it repaired. One doctor was insisted on him getting it repaired and the other one said well maybe you can wait you know and we could you know check it out again in six months and see how it's you know, if it's grown or whatever and um like i said that was three years ago and he didn't get it repaired and he's still going fine so well, i don't know how do you all view that whether it was the, the right choice or what would you have gone and I told him I thought I would just wait, wait and see. Yeah, Jeff, and I'm really sorry you got you and your dad both got put in that position because, you know, here you are listening to doctors and you hear two 
drastically different opinions. And that that makes it harder for you guys to have that discussion. Um, Dr. Baker, I'm sure you have folks who have that problem. And one doctor says, do this. Another doctor says, do something else. And the poor patient and family are in the middle saying, well, who do I listen to? (laughs) And how do you counsel someone about that situation? I mean, I think, Jeff, in this particular case, your dad's been fine. So he made the right choice. He's doing well. And if he's had this, this artery going to the kidney, what we call it the renal artery, if he's had it checked again, and everything's the same size, hey, you know, and he made a good choice. But it shouldn't have had to be so difficult, and I don't know if it was, um, but it sounds like it might have been because three years later, Jeff, it's still in your mind. Uh, what do you think about things like this, Dr. Baker? What do you do? Well, you know, I think one of the issues here or one of the problems and one of the reasons why this happens is because uh, doctors are human. And if, if you bring Nuh-uh, to me— I'm superhuman. Uh, yes. Okay. Just you can. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah. Okay. All right. So doctors are human. I'm sorry. Yep. So if you bring a problem to a doctor— their human nature says, I want to fix this. I want to do something about it. It's harder. It's, it's really much harder, I think, for a doctor to say, let's not do anything about this. That's, that's kind of goes against, you know, what we, it's like everything you do in your training, it's like we want to fix things. We want to make somebody better. So if you, if you bring me a problem and I'm going to look at it and say, yeah, don't do anything, that's a, that's a harder thing to do. But it's, it's still, it goes back to that conversation with the patient and finding somebody you trust and, you know, you can certainly get more than one opinion and then you are kind of stuck and you're put in a position where, well, one doc says one thing and another doc says another thing. What should I do? And to me, that means if, you know, there's kind of conflicting opinions, you can probably do what you want to do and it's going to be okay. That's a really good way to put it. Do what you want to do and it, it'll probably be it'll probably be okay. That's a good that's yeah. a good way to take a look at it. Um, if you wanted to know specifically what you should do, you could actually go to a place like Choosing Wisely. Maybe not in Jeff's case. This was a very specific problem. But if you're looking at, and I got to say, I looked at that website. Bone density is on there. Um, brain scans for headaches is on there. Antibiotics for pink eye. Antibiotics for sinusitis. Um, colon screening is on there. Prostate mm-hmm. screening is on there. Mm-hmm. Um, Ovarian cancer screening. Exactly. That's another big hot one because there technically really isn't a good way to screen for that. Um, they also look at mammograms. Who should have one? If you're 90, should you do it? I mean, listen, at 90, I give you a pass. <laughs> you don't have to keep doing things if you don't want to. <laughs> and, in fact, guidelines suggest we should stop it at certain age, age limits because it may not help somebody to do <laughs> these. If somebody wanted to get more information, tell us again about where they can find that. So the website is choosingwisely.org. And not only are there a number of recommendations there now, but they're increasing because each specialty society is adding more and more recommendations. And we'll, we'll probably retire some if they become obsolete. Well, and, you know, I was looking at it earlier today. There's a lot of great information on the site. So I feel like we have to have you on again. We didn't get to a lot of the things that is on the site that we can go over. Well, there's, but There's more than 300. Well, okay. We, can't, we could have you on every, every day. That would be great. All right. Well, thanks so much for sharing your expertise with us today on The Body Show. Well, thank you for having me here. If you'd like to hear this show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org. Follow the links to The Body Show. You can also find us on Facebook. If you want to know more about the program we are talking about today, it's choosingwisely.org. Lots of good medical information. You can also, when we talked earlier with Dr. Shaw, you can go to smartcaredoc.com. That's another way to hear more about virtual medicine. Our engineer is David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Kozlovich. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week here on The Body Show.